You're listening to Center Circle. Welcome to Center Circle. I'm Dan Brotman. I'm Dominic Cassiato. And I'm Janiel Lauren. Today we'll discuss the three C's of playing like a champion, which is competence, care, and choice. Great, let's start off with competence. If we're looking at competence from, from the coaches to facilitate competence from players, um, there's a lot of things that we have to take into account. Janiel and I were talking earlier about the different types of learning styles. Three learning styles, three main learning styles are auditory, visual, and kinesthetic. So obviously if it's auditory, you're looking at somebody who, who learns from hearing. Um, if it's visual, you're, you're dealing with somebody who learns from seeing. Um, and if you're dealing with kinesthetic, it's somebody who, who learns from doing. So from a coaching standpoint, to facilitate competence in your players, you have to hit on all three of those learning styles in each training session you're doing, in each game you're doing, to make sure that the players completely understand what's expected of them. And then that helps to facilitate the competence in the technical area, maybe a tactical area, whatever it is you want them to achieve. What's your take, Dan? When I look at competence, I break it down into five pillars of soccer. Now, normally there's four, but I expand the mental into two. So we have technical, tactical, game intelligence, or what some people call soccer IQ, psychological, and the physical, which I look to be not only just conditioning, but speed, agility, power, and those attributes, which you know Dom is quite familiar with working at Parisi Speed School. So looking at those individual verticals, you know, the technical is very important because you want to have players that are confident on the ball. There's no fumbling around when they get past two. It's a quick touch and they're thinking. As far as the tactical, they have to understand how to play the game, not just how to kick a ball. So when I'm designing drills, activities, what have you, I'm always trying to combine two or three of these pillars into one activity. It's not just technical, not just dribbling the ball. It's dribbling and then having to make a game situation decision. So as I mentioned before, I'm a huge proponent of game intelligence. I'm educating my players about the game, whether that's terminology, whether that's concepts like basic defending. I'm starting basic defending with playing goal side, putting yourself between the ball and the goal. You can even do that with goaltenders as well, where you're actually telling them, I just want you to continually position yourself between the ball and the goal. Step out of the goal, three to five steps, and position yourself between the ball and the goal. That instantly tells these players to cut the angle, but they don't realize they're cutting the angle. They're just following the ball. It also keeps them focused on the game. So game intelligence, very important. And then psychological, which is a very, very big component. And I think something that is actually going to get delved into even deeper you know, as soccer progresses. And I know, Janiel, you're very tuned into that. But to finish off, you know, looking at the physical, like the physical aspects of soccer now are just way beyond conditioning. Run around the pitch 10 times. I mean, there's so many different attributes going from biomechanics to looking at somebody's skeletal structure to see how much they're going to grow into the future as far as their height, their weight, and all those other things based on modeling. 
So all these things together bring together competence. But I'm looking at the player. I'm looking at each one of these different verticals and I'm making an assessment on a player's competence. I'm not just looking at one. Now, Juniel, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the psychological, which I know you've done a lot of research into. Well, I'll start by saying ultimately what we're looking for is for kids to play the game with the kind of desire that doesn't have to do solely with winning. I think if a kid thinks his success or failure is, is based on winning, then the approach might not be the same on a week-to-week -week basis. So when we talk about competence, we're talking about the kid's ability or the coach's ability to steer the kids to believe that your effort, the things that you could control in a game, is ultimately what will make you a winner on that particular day. Or losing the match might not make you a loser. You might have lost the game, but ultimately you're not defeated by losing the game. I actually saw a great quote, it's funny you say that Janelle, I saw a great quote the other day from uh, Jose Mourinho, who I'm sure everybody knows, but one of his early mentors was Bobby Robson, um, an old English coach, and uh, Mourinho said the biggest thing he took from, from Bobby Robson when he worked with him um, at Barcelona and, and in, in Portugal was that if you win a game it doesn't make you the best in the world and if you lose a game it doesn't make you the worst in the world. Um, and a big thing that, that I think Janelle and I both agree on, I'm sure you agree on this as well Dan, is you can't get too up, too high with the ups and you can't get too down with the downs. You have to try and stay consistent in your mindset throughout and you have to keep winning and losing in perspective. And that kind of gets into not just developing players but also developing, developing people which we, we discussed earlier. Right, but they don't know we discussed it earlier. Oh, we had some great discussions earlier. Right? I'm sorry you missed <laughs> it. Always. You should have taped it. <laughs> so one of, one of the things we have to always think about as people that are educating youngsters in the game is how the, the professional game is what we model ourselves after. You know, everyone wants to play like the Barca and they want to play like the Chelsea and so on and so forth. But we have to be careful because at the highest level, it's, it's, it's a business and people play to win games and they'll win at any cost. So are we trickling down that, that principle, that theory to the younger game, to the kids in the younger game? Because if we are, I don't think we're doing the right thing. And if kids believe that winning at any cost is right because they're seeing the pros do it or you know, the, the coach that they admire doing it, then somehow we're sending the wrong message to them. They have to understand that. At that level, it's just different. It's a business. It's about wins and losses. It's about the financials of it. And as a kid, it should not be about those things. Well, I think Dom touched on this earlier, is about also connecting with the kids, you know, so they have individual goals. And if they can go into the game with an individual goal for themselves, uh, let's say at the basic level, you're a, a U7, U8 player, and your goal if, as a defender is when you do your goal kick, you're going to get it out towards the sideline. And that's your individual goal of the game. So if you can do that consistently during the game, you've won. Now, it doesn't matter what the result is ultimately with the game, but that kid can come away feeling good about himself, even at an 8 nothing loss, because he know he performed. The other thing is to connect on individual levels with the players so that they all can have individual goals no matter what their role is on the field. It might be something that's purely psychological. Don't get down on yourself if you made a bad play. It might be something, as I just suggested, making a proper play to the outside so you don't set up the other team for an easy shot on goal by kicking it towards the center. Can you think of any ways, Dan, that might help to implement those goals? You know, it's tough 
for a lot of volunteer coaches um, you know they might show up on a Sunday and trying to organise the team and then you know it's tough to speak to, to 12 individuals and, and give them individual attention is there any shortcuts you can think of to, to, to hammer it home quicker I think just doing your homework and coming to the game prepared I mean so many people you know they want to spend countless hours on the sideline coaching they spend countless hours going to practices but then they don't spend any hours either educating themselves on being better coaches or prepping their team successfully for the game. So what I tend to do is during a warm-up, I'll have a list that I've already written out for each one of the kids, and I'll then pull a kid out of the side. All right, today, this is what we're working on. All right, you understand? Good, go back and play. And then I'll pull another kid. So I will be able to touch individual players like that. And then before the game, and this is something that uh, actually Jernil implemented, is giving like a team goal. So now the, the kids have individual goals. Now let's have a team goal that's not just scoring, which is can we make three or four passes in this game? Can we connect three or four passes? Can we, after a goal kick, proceed down the field past the halfway line? Can we get to that? And every time we get to that, we can earn points that then go to something greater, like going out for ice cream if you're a little kid, which matters a great deal. We used that for very successfully last season, where we're getting the team, we didn't have a lot of development going into it. The kids were getting blown out. But as we progressed as far as what we were teaching the kids, we implemented that reward system during the game so they can have that feeling of winning, even though they lost. So they didn't care at the end, they lost eight nothing. But they did care is that they got enough points by doing the right things during the game to go get some ice cream. Right, so you basically we're talking about developing an environment that enables players to be champions and, and what you touched on there Dan was you know giving the players that individual attention or, or you know a piece of information before a game um, something I've used quite successfully is if we're about to do a training session um, you know before training the kids are, are kind of getting in there in, in dribs and drabs and not all there at the same time there's another team on the field before you get on there so it's tough to really speak to every individual you know, straight away if one's coming from a driver's ed class or something like that if you're dealing with older kids. So one thing I've used is putting up a whiteboard and we'll have every kid's name um, listed on the whiteboard and we'll have the topic of the session. So if we're working on transition, um, for example, we'll have every single player in the squad listed on there and then we'll have an individual goal for the session that we want to see from them. So it could be from your centre forward when the ball's played into him, um, try to protect the ball and bring others into the game. Um, it could be for your centre-back, can you play into midfield as soon as you win the ball back? And then that little bit of individual uh, feedback is there, written for them straight away, um, and they can, they can see it and they're clear on what's expected of them from the session uh, without you wasting too much time. It takes you know, 30 seconds to read what you're looking for. I think you, you've touched on something that I've studied before as well, and ultimately... We talk about the visual process of going through plays in your head. Sometimes when you have a session and you're not focused in on exactly what you're trying to work on and the kids don't know, then you might have a practice session, but there's really no tangible progress. There's really no gain. And if you could focus in on what you're working on in the session, then you could have the kids know when they have some level of success or when they're struggling with you know, whatever you're working on. And coming out of it, they might feel like, wow, I really got better. Um, one other exercise that I've used, you know, whether it's post-game or pre-game, I have the kids close their eyes and pretty much picture the type of plays they want to make. Picture the quality p 
type of plays. And I tell them, feel them. Feel the ball touching your shoe. Feel the ball hitting your chest. Feel that header going on to into the goal. Feel the net. Hear the net go. You know, you, you want to visualize how your technique's going to be. And what happened is the study has shown that your, your body doesn't know the difference between you doing it or your mem- mind just repeating it in its head. And, and if you could visually do it over and over correctly in your head, you have more chance of succeeding once you actually do the practical work. And, and that's something that I haven't done it long, but I've done it with my players and I've tried it with myself. And, and it's interesting to know that study says it, it re- it's really no difference in it. What's the age have you tested it on? You know, the youngest to the oldest? Well, I, I tend to do all my studies with all my group because then I want to know if there's some sort of what I would call developmental threshold, you know, in my study. They say, well, there's different types of development. Is development, you know, steady? Is it, is it something that just happens smoothly along the age or is there benchmarks? You know, do you hit age 12 when something could kick in that you can't kick in at 12? And, and there's no right answers with this. It's just something that you have to constantly look into. Um, study has shown that where with some kids you'll find that they get to a certain age and some things just kick in, just like puberty. And with other kids, it's a steady kind of developmental path that doesn't spikes up or down. So there's no right answer. You just kind of kind of have to do your studies and be open-minded to adjust where you're after for each player. Mm. And, the, and the, the tough thing about trying to define a, an age where development is taking place is every, every kid is different in terms of their developmental stage. Um, and it's not just physically, it's also mentally. You know, you may have a player who is an under 10 um, and physically you know he's, he's the biggest kid in his age group he's a good player um, and you want to move him up an age group to test him a little more and, and challenge him um, but you have to make sure that mentally he's ready for something like that he, he may not have the maturity level to, to deal with playing with older kids um, and, and being a taken away from his, his social group um, at such a young age so you have to take those things into consideration when you're, when you're talking about developing players. And I think something that we should touch on here is in regards to competence is how players should show up to the field either to practice or at game time. Because there's a lot of kids that show up and if you're out there and you have a mind of a champion, you want to give your full effort and 100%, how can you prepare yourself or how can a coach prepare his players to come to that field with that mentality instead of you know pushing your friends around or laughing or anything but focusing on soccer? I think we have to remember that they are still kids, so there's always going to be an element of that kind of horseplay and falling around. There, there will always be that, and I think if you try and strip kids of that, it's, it's a dangerous thing because then they can start to associate soccer with something that is, is not fun anymore. So I think you can maybe set a, a time, say everyone has to be there, you know, 45 minutes or an hour before the game. Everyone has to wear, you know, the same uniform. Um, something like that but if you get too restrictive it can become like a job for these kids um, and at a young age if you do that to them it kind of stifles their creativity and it can it can suck the enjoyment out of the game from which I think we have to be very 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 careful of as coaches. Um, well this is kind of what leads us into what we're talking about how do we get the coaches you know and the volunteer coaches to, to impact the environment in such a positive way ultimately development happens and it's going to happen we know that the environment has a big impact on 
how kids develop. So if we have coaches or a club that or a program that understands that these are the values that we have and all the coaches within that program are going to make sure that without stifling creativity and without taking the fun out of the practice sessions, can we make sure that the effort is always good and the kids understand that it's important and we're never going to give up no matter what the score is. And that kind of environment, it, it comes back to the adult in the environment to create that environment that will foster that kind of growth as the kids go along. It, it, development doesn't happen on its own, one will say. Um, you can evolve on your own, but development doesn't happen on its own. So I believe the adults, the coaches, the directors, the presidents, we have a big, big role to play in how kids develop as it pertains to competency. You know, it's just the way it has to be. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about care. Welcome back to Center Circle. We're talking about what makes a champion player, and we're now moving on to care. Danielle, why don't you give us an overview of care and how it pertains to the three C's? Well, ultimately, care is just, I consider it respect. You know, do you respect the game? Do you respect your opponents? Do you respect your teammates? Um, do you respect referees? And, and, and that's what it comes down to. Are you playing this game at a win at all cost or are you respecting the game in such a way that the sportsmanship is highly valued and you see that in, in a championship way? I believe that champions not only win games and win championships, but they, they play with care. They will pick a player up even though he's on the other shirt, other side of the ball, because they know that kid might be hurt and he's, he's a human being just like anyone else. It's really interesting that you say that. I was actually reading a study about Barcelona's academy a few days ago, and in Barcelona's philosophy for their academy at La Masia, which is a residential academy, obviously produced some of the best players in the world, one of their main objectives is to be the most sporting team in Spain. Now, that goes against what a lot of other academies are doing. They, they want to produce players, they want to win, they want to win the league, they want to win the Champions League, all this stuff. But high up on their list of priorities is also being the most sporting team. I don't know if you'd find that anywhere else. And, and I think that that's what separates like the really special ones. I've gone, since the way I learn things is, is important, but I, they say if you don't implement what you learn, it's no good to you. You know, mm. knowledge is in power, but applied knowledge is. So when I pick up a fancy idea or something that I think is of great value, I tend to use my teams as guinea pig. And I say to my teams, listen, I want to make sure when we're out there today, I don't just want us to be the team that's working the hardest. I want us to demonstrate that the most sportsmanship out there. Show the referee that, listen, whether he calls the right call for you or not, you're going to show him the same respect. Pick that young lady up or that young man up when he falls, even though he's not your teammate. Run over to see if he's okay. Shake his hand. Hard tackle, pick him up. Mm. And I think it makes a whole lot of difference because sometimes... Again, in an environment where you're teaching kids to win games or compete at the highest level, you might be creating kids that don't know how to treat their peers the right way. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it comes down to what we said earlier about um, you're not just developing players, you're developing people. Kids are not mini adults. You know, they're, they're going through a developmental stage, like we said earlier. And 
it's important that you recognize that and you don't hold them to the same standard you'd hold a 21 or 22 year old because they haven't developed that sense of what's right or wrong through experience yet and the game is a great way to learn about life through experience and the people that you meet so what i'm what i'm trying to say is if you can help players to learn about tough times and good times through the game it's not only going to stand them in good stead for the game it's going to stand them in good stead for whatever they do in life you know no matter who you're coaching whether it's the best team in the country the worst team in the country you're not going to coach very many kids who are going to be professional players so should you be trying to teach kids to win games or should you be teaching them the game and life skills through the game and I think if you do that the ones who are going to be pros are going to make it anyway because they're self-motivated and if they get in the right environment they will go on to, to do what they're going to do but you can't just worry about those types of players you have to cater to, to everyone and, and the good of your group whatever level your group is at is to teach them something about life through the game um, and I certainly learned a lot from playing about, about life and it, it helped me to mature um, and I'm sure most people would say the same if, if they get put into good environments with good coaches and and they're surrounded by good people. I think that out of the three C's, this is the most important one. And I think this respect is the foundation for everything you want to teach a kid or, as you said, develop a kid, not just to play the game, but in life as well. And I think if you can instill a respect for the individual, like respect yourself, and if you respect yourself, you're going to conduct yourself in a certain way. You want to respect your teammates. You never want to get, be getting down on a teammate because they made a mistake on the field. You don't want to be getting down on your goalie for missing a save or for your striker for missing a sitter. You have to respect your fellow teammates and you're going to have to understand that they're going to make some great plays and they're going to make some not so great plays. So as long as you're even keeled and you have that respect for them, it doesn't matter what they're going to do. You also have to respect your coaches, which enables you to make more of a connection because if a kid is going to respect you then he's going to listen to what you have to say now some of that respect you can say is earned but they have to be cognizant that they have to respect the coach they have to behave in a certain manner they have to respect the ref i always tell kids react to the call not the decision that way if you react to the call and it's a free kick outside your 18 you're setting up your wall you're organizing your bit if you're arguing with the ref over the call you're not doing any of that and if they take a quick kick you could be susceptible so i think it's very important that you respect the ref you respect your coaches you respect your teammates and most importantly you respect yourself so to kind of touch on why we're having discussion and kind of circle back on the adults in the environment, we're saying if, if we're going to hold the kids accountable for these actions, we have to hold the adults, the coaches, the trainers, and so on even more accountable because we know that kids are going to learn and develop through the environment, the experience of the environment. So talking about a club setup or, you know, putting a program together, we have to hold our coaches and trainers and, and all the adults in the environment to these behaviors because the kids are gonna pick up on the behaviors of their coaches. If if I'm a coach and I'm yelling at the ref, well, my, my, my 
kids are going to think, well, you know what? It's probably okay for me to yell at the ref because I know that ball didn't hit my hand and he says it's a handball. If I'm a coach and my right midfielder makes a mistake and I yell at him because he made an obvious mistake, well, the center mid is going to think it's okay to yell at him in the same manner. So I think the focus we're looking at here is a lot of the responsibility of the adult in the environment. Are we holding our adults accountable for these behaviors? Are we putting the adults in a position to, to make sure that the kids are learning it. If, if the adults aren't doing it, then our kids are learning from the environment in a negative fashion. And that goes right to the parents on the sideline, which are usually acting even worse than the coach if he's yelling at the ref. I mean, they're up in arms, they're yelling. They most likely don't know the rules or the laws of the game, we should say, or what they're talking about. But they're up in arms on the sideline and kids feed off of that. So if you can also instill that respect to the parents as well, that helps. I, um, I think going back to care, a, a big responsibility of the coach is to show the players that he cares about them and about their development and about them as people as well as players. Dan talked earlier about respecting your coaches um, and, and that respect being earned, which is a huge thing. You have to do certain things to earn that respect and to earn a level of trust with your players. You know, looking at good ways to do that is to make sure you're there on time, make sure you're there with a plan of what you're going to do, making sure that you're greeting people, making sure that your body language is positive. Um, all these things people have to take into account and, and try and encompass them when they're delivering a session. Um, because if they don't and, you know, kids are falling around or kids are being disrespectful, they're going to be asking themselves, well, you know, little Johnny, he's, he's a nightmare to coach. Well, is he a nightmare to coach? Or have you allowed him to become a nightmare to coach because you haven't set the right example? He hasn't seen that he should be respectful of you because you haven't carried yourself in the way that somebody who should be respected by young people should be carrying themselves. So these are things that people really have to take into consideration. And going back to what, what Janil said, you know, kids are, are going to imitate what they see. From, from their role models and coaches, you know, rightly or wrongly, they are role models. So you've got to try and be the best role model that you can. Um, if you're out there screaming at the refs, you're, you're fighting with the opposition coach, then that's what you're going to breed in your players. So it's, it's very important and how a coach carries himself and, and that he shows that he cares about the players, about them as people, and also cares about the game and respects the game. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk about choice. on choice. Janiel? Choices are ultimately helping kids to understand that the decision in playing and their decisions on the field, it's theirs. Often we have coaches and parents that believe that 
we should help a kid to make a decision during the game. And I believe a championship mentality is one that allows the kids to make their own choices and only help them at the appropriate time, whether it be in, in practice sessions or at halftime or, you know, post the play. So how do we help coaches and, 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 and directors and trainers to understand that this is an important part of development and unless we allow them to do it on their own we're actually hindering their developmental process that's very true i think it's a well-known fact that if you can learn something on your own um, you're more likely to stick with it if you're spoon-fed everything um, you become reliant on the person who's holding the spoon and that's a dangerous area to get into because when that person's no longer there um, what do you do then players have to know how to adjust um, they have to be adaptable and they have to be able to think for themselves which is a, a huge thing in the modern game and um, it's also again we, we keep cycling back to how it affects them on a, on a wider scale in life um, but they're going to be from things in life that they've never experienced um, and they, they might not have somebody there who, who's been through the same experience to call on so they're going to have to figure it out for themselves and it's the same within the game um, you have to put them into situations when they have problems to solve and you can help guide them towards the solutions, but it's always best if they come up with the solutions on their own. And you brought up a phrase in, in, in your, what you were saying just now, Don, which is basically problem solving. And I don't believe the average person understands the difference between a, a problem solver and a decision maker. Ultimately, if, if you program a kid and tell him these are the four options you have, and the game starts, he's going to have to make a decision, a choice between those four options. Mm. A problem solver, he's open-minded to beyond the four options that you've given him. So you'll find players that will go through their, their progression of the four or five ideas that you've given them, and they'll figure out that neither one of those work for that particular situation, and they'll go into problem-solving mode and just wing it. And, and that's an important thing to understand within kids. Do you give them the ability to wing it? Do you give them the flexibility to figure it out? Well, Some coaches that, don't. Well, doesn't that come down to the ability that mistakes are okay? Yes. Ultimately. You're going to make a choice. Sometimes that choice is going to be the right choice, and sometimes that's going to be the wrong choice. And yes, you're going to make some wrong choices. Everybody does, but it's okay. As long as you learn from that bad choice so that you're going to try to prohibit making that choice again, then I think it's okay and you should also encourage people to try new things to experiment and maybe you'll make some mistakes but at least you'll learn by doing in order to become a, a, a problem solver in my opinion the player must be given a license a freedom to explore those opportunities and, and I've done this study as an early coach and I figured why are some of my players better problem solvers than others and ultimately I gave some license and freedoms that I didn't give to others and I learned from my errors, you know, if you don't give them a license or freedom to do it, they're never going to become better at it. But what's the reason why you're not? It might be you're scared of your defenders messing up in front of the net. So you might not give them as much freedom. It might be because the game is too important. It might be because you don't believe in that player's ability. It could be a lot of different reasons. Ultimately, my experience says if you really want top flight players, you must give them all the ability to to problem solve and you must live with the decisions that they make after the fact and hope for the best if you can't live with the decisions then you're always going to limit their options it, the, the thing that people have to understand and i know 
there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of coaches listening to this you know volunteer or paid or otherwise and people have to understand the learning process and that mistakes are a crucial part of the learning process and, and, and makes them a crucial part of a young person's development as a player and as a person if the player experiences success for 10 years and then they get thrust into a, a collegiate environment and they're, uh, they're redshirted as a freshman they're not going to know how to deal with that um, so it's important that players are put into difficult situations that challenge them that allow them to fail but it's effective failure it's not failure for failure's sake to make them feel bad about themselves it's failure that helps to facilitate learning um, and it's not a case of coaches basically being commentators on the failure they can't just say oh well you know you messed up you can't use your left foot well maybe you haven't put enough time into that left foot here's some things you could do in your own time that are going to improve your left foot so that when you get into that situation in two months time you're going to be better you're going to be able to deal with it um, and it's important that coaches understand that especially with young players they're going to make mistakes they're not adults they're not professional players yet um, they'll probably never be professional players so it's important that you understand as a coach that failure is an essential part of learning and it's important that the kids understand that as well that it's okay to fail as long as the intentions are to try and do it right um, you don't want to get into the the culture that you know yeah let's fail it's great because it's not but it is a part of learning and it's an essential part of learning that shouldn't be overlooked and I think it's important also to point out when professionals make a mistake I was watching the game with my son we we're watching a Manchester United game where you know Rooney had that beautiful volley shot from just beyond the halfway mark that went over the goal it actually banked around and curved into the goal but on the same game after that brilliance, there was a cross in from the outside and he swung and missed. He whiffed <laughs> on the ball. And I said, to, I said to my son, I said, see, here's the great Wayne Rooney here, missed the ball, he made a mistake. Do you see himself getting down here? He's probably angry, but he's not carrying it throughout the whole game with him looking down at his feet and kicking himself. He's moved on, he made a mistake, it's over. And he's forgotten about it. And, yeah. and a big thing I've seen, in my own playing experiences, players who have, have gone on to play at the highest level are able to, to deal with mistakes better. Um, you know, a lot of players, they'll make a mistake and they'll beat themselves up over it and it'll play on their mind and, you know, one mistake suddenly turns into two mistakes, into three mistakes, into a, a terrible performance in a game. Um, but what people have to understand is the game is full of mistakes. It's full of mistakes and the teams and the individuals that um, are more successful are able to deal with the mistakes better and they're more adaptable so that when the mistakes happen in a game in the flow of a game okay well I left back's out of position alright my left winger's going to fill in for him and all of a sudden the mistake is nullified whereas if you make a big commotion and a big drama out of our left back being out of position and we all start screaming at him oh all of a sudden their right winger's got in and he's scored I'm of the belief and, and this is a philosophy that I hold near and dear to my heart I coach for mistakes and one might say what do you mean I believe if you're not making mistakes, you're not learning. So in my practice sessions, I actually coach into it. I want the players to push and try and go faster and, and try harder until we find a mistake. And when we find a mistake, that's the part that we have to start improving. So one might say, wow, that's a weird strategy. No, it's not. The only difference on game day is that 
if you're looking for that mistake to learn, the only difference is if you're going to win or lose a game. And we know this major um, conversation that we could have about winning and how it impacts development. But I believe ultimately at the root of most bad decision with development is that ultimate thing of not wanting to lose. Uh, we could talk forever about it, but I believe it's just so vital that 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 unwillingness to lose in our culture that it forces us into so many developmental errors. So not only, as Dom said, is, is, is it a byproduct of development, which is mistakes, but it's also a great part to start teaching. Where is your mistake at? Why did you make that mistake? Okay, that's where we're going to pick up from because prior to the mistake, you're good at it. <laughs> but it's that creativity that you want to foster and what's it, which is interesting for American coaches, especially American coaches that coach other sports, namely basketball or football, where it's more of a coach's game and less of a player's game. Mm -hmm. You know, you could sit there and you call a timeout playing basketball and you set up a play and that you want to execute perfectly and if you execute perfectly the ball hopefully goes into the hoop but in soccer it's about as we described earlier problem solving in real time under pressure so you want these kids to make better decisions under pressure so they're going to have to learn to kind of execute some of their creativity so sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't and when it does work and there is a an amazing play that's what we call it, the beautiful well, game. Well, I think you, you touched on an important thing, and I, I'm learning as we go, because I'm always learning, is, is how do you have success in our game? I think people from different cultures in soccer, they kind of know different ways to quantify success. I think the average parent in the game doesn't know success. And if you think about success, the only thing that quantifies success in our game is the goal. So in football, you have a first down. You know, in, in, in basketball, you, you get tons of points before the game is over. In, in baseball, you could get to first base or second base. In our game, it's only the goal. Mm. So you could see how an average parent that doesn't appreciate the game the way it should be thinks that there's, you're just failing until you get the ball in the net. Well, actually, it's not the case. There's tons of successes going on in the game until you get that goal. But it's not, you know, statistically. There's nothing to measure. Right. That's what I was going to say. So you could say, yeah, you can have a great guy in baseball. gets on base all the time, right? Got a triple. We don't know if he scores, right? But he's got great stats. You know, basketball, great stats. You got triple-double. In soccer, I think they're starting to wade into those waters of statistics, you know, completed passage, percentage-wise, possession, all these other attributes. But you're exactly right. We don't have that. Oh, you, you know, got to the 18 yards so many yeah. times. You get nothing for it. And you, it's very difficult to implement that in youth soccer because you don't have the technology. Don't you know. don't have the investment. You don't have the um, coaching. A designated guy who's coaching that's just looking for that. Yeah, you and, know? and you know, you, you could maybe implement that once or twice a season if you had a you know a parent who was willing to help you out and do that. But it's it's hard to implement. It's very very hard to implement. So so coaches basically have to be brave and have to stick to what they want to achieve and they have to educate the parents a little bit as well that the game is not about winning and losing at a young age the game is about improvement about developing about learning and if you're doing all those things in all your training sessions you're going to end up winning games it's as simple as that um, but people can sometimes get caught up in, in the W's in thinking we have to win we have to win we have to win and they forget what goes into, into the winning and all of a sudden you're, you're breeding teams that don't really know how to play they just know how to win. 
and, and that's a dangerous area to get into because then, you know, where are the, the future players going to come from? Well, I think it's a lack of patience on a lot of different levels, but mainly the parents. If your kid is getting significantly better every season, every year, and yet you still want to jump that kid to another team because they're a higher division or that you think of that they have perceived success, that's a problem. And, and that's what happens. We have this mentality that the parents always want the bigger, better deal for their kid. And they, they sacrifice, I think, too much as far as the development goes if the kid is actually developing, getting better, and becoming a If, you know. if we go back to what we said before, though, it, there's so many, well, there's not a whole lot of ways that you can measure that development. I think in, in the experts in the game, we could measure progress in a kid. The average parent, where are the numbers? You know, again, you have the baseball player, the numbers are there. You have the basketball player, the numbers are there. You have the soccer player, what numbers are you talking about? Well, I think they so can see you, some. Yeah. Like, there's certainly going to be a plateau at some point where they might, it might not be, you, they can't perceive it as much. But let's say at a younger age, are these kids starting to, you know, instead of just passing it, a successful pass to one or two players. Now, are they passing it four, five, six I times? I don't think are the average they parent does that, though. Right. I think the average parent says, oh, we won a championship this year. Or we went 8-0. and oh, Or we went, they see it, it comes right back to, the, the, the record of the team or the championship of it. And, and you, what you're saying is absolutely a fact, but they don't have the intelligence to, to, to figure that out. Yeah, and I, I think it comes back really, if we're talking about creating a culture of, of champions here, for your players to be champions, you, I'm not, this is a dangerous territory I'm getting into here, but maybe your parents have to be champions as well. Well, and you now... Have to, you have to try and educate the parents. You're not just coaching the kids, you're coaching the parents. You're yeah. ultimately, though, I'm saying what we're saying, and my focus is when I speak to the coaches, it's going to be what we consider probably the, the first leg of ultimately something that will have to trickle down to parents and to players. But we've always focused on players. But if the players are the, the less developed ones in the environment and the younger ones in the environment and the not so smart ones in the environment, if we want to use those terminologies, then we can't hold them more accountable than anyone else. So how are we going to hold our adults to these, C3, these three Cs? Mm. If our adults aren't demonstrating these three Cs, you could bet your last dollar that the kids won't. There's no way the kids will because the kids are just the mirror image of the parents. And if you can influence the home environment as well as the soccer environment, um, you're going to have a lot of success. Um, just to give you an, an example of kind of what we're talking about, um, almost two years ago I took over and under, they were under-14s at the time. And the team were pretty successful, you know, they'd won the State Cup the year before and, you know, had won a lot of games, won some tournaments and, and things like that. And the parents had kind of got carried away with the success of the team. Um, but if you were to watch from the outside and you were fairly knowledgeable about the game, you'd see that these kids are way, way behind um, technically way behind where they should be but the parents were so caught up in winning games that they thought winning games was going to get their kids college scholarships and, and all the rest of it that they completely lost sight of the development which is what we're talking about so the first thing I did was um, have a meeting with the parents and explain to them where the kids shortcomings were and basically let them know that they've been neglected from a technical standpoint and and the next year was going to be spent on getting these kids up to speed technically. Um, and that might be as, a, as a, a byproduct of that would be that you're probably going to lose more games than you used to because the kids have to learn the game more rather than learn to win. And it's actually, it's, it's actually gone very well. 
um, and the parents bought into it and now they understand the game more and they understand when a player has played well rather than oh well we lost today so we suck it's you know what we lost we actually played pretty well or, or we won and this is why we won not just yeah we won we're the best um, and it's again going back to that not getting too higher with the highs and not getting too down with the downs there's a, there's a few things I want to touch on there right sorry Janiel I'd love to hear what you have to say but unfortunately we have to take a short break we'll be right back center circle we're now going to conclude about playing like a champion and Janiel's going to go on about parent education what I was saying before the break was how in, in psychology of it which I study quite a bit you know there's certain cognitive biases that we have and Dom touched on how the parents might view winning a certain way or losses a certain way and it, it, it's such a what we call a, a version of halo effect when you see a team that won the state cup or went 9-0 and or 15-0 and and so on to actually think that they have to be playing good football. Everyone thinks if you're undefeated and you're the best team in the state, your football is so good and your players are technical. And it's not always the case because as a coach, we know that we could teach kids how to play a certain pattern of soccer or, or execute on their set pieces and they'll win games. You know, but are they really growing as players? Are they really technically sound? Are they tactically sound? And, and that's another sense of what I call cognitive biases. We also see where, you know, parents might believe that, hey, if my son or daughter isn't having the best experience with a particular group, it's, it's nothing of my own. It's definitely something that's wrong with the culture, the club. And hence, they move to another program when in some cases it might just be something that they're lacking. Their discipline might be off or they're not as open-minded as they should be in playing a certain position that the coach might find that is good for them. You know, so I believe as people, we all have these biases that will hinder us from being as open-minded as we possibly can, which ultimately might stop us from the success that we want, whether it's in development, whether it's in performance with a player, whether it's with our programs, whether it's our team, you know, we have to stay open-minded. We have to stay what I call developing as ourself. Development in theory says it's from birth to death. Are we developing as adults? Are we developing as coaches, as parents? And I think a lot of us have stopped developing because parents have shown that over the years of having them, they're no different in how they demonstrate themselves on the football pitch. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic that you have to keep developing yourself. Um, a lot of people get comfortable, you know, they, they get a job that, that pays fairly well, um, they get settled down with a family and stuff, and all of a sudden the development as an individual stops. Um, if you can have adults who are continuing to develop themselves, then that sets a fantastic example for your players um, to continue to develop, not just as, as players, but you know, in their studies or, or in their professions that they're going to go on and, and do, you know, um, and whatever else it is, they'll have, a, they'll have a real passion for knowledge and a passion for life, which I think is, is what we're trying to achieve. And I'm sure if, if you were to talk to a hundred parents and you told them maybe one of your kids might be a pro or he might get a Division One scholarship, but they're all going to become better people and they're going to 
know how to deal with success and failure, I'm sure most of the parents would, would buy into that because it's going to stand them in good stead for the future. You can look at this as self-examination. And self-examination is something that you have to, once you start being cognizant of self, you can start examining yourself and examining your behavior, whether that is interacting with somebody such as your teachers, your coaches. But I think self-examination as a coach is something that's very, very important so that they have what we talked about, betterment. It's all about bettering yourself. If you stop bettering yourself, you start kind of start living. Exactly. You always have to kind of grow and develop. And if you just cut yourself off as a coach, oh, I know everything. Well, the interesting thing, and I think we all notice, is the more we learn about soccer, the more we, we realize the less we know about soccer and the, so much more there is to learn. It just keeps growing almost like the universe. You, you, you discover the solar system only to realize, oh my gosh, look at these other galaxies out there uh, with billions and billions of stars. And I think the self-examination as a coach is very, very important. You conduct a practice session. How did that practice session go? Well, did the kids learn? You examine how they, but then you say, could have I said that better? Could have I explained that concept in a different way so maybe I had better understanding from the players? And if you're a player and you play in a game, you should also have self-examination. How did I do? Could have I made better choices? Hey, I tried to do that. Did that work? Did it not work? A lot of times, you know, especially older kids, when they have the ability to actually examine what they've done as far as their performance, they don't do so. They just put the game in the rearview mirror and they're moving on. Well, that's fine in, in some ways, especially having a terrible game. But if you had that terrible game and you examined why you had that terrible game, you might be able to avoid those decisions or that outcome in the future. Dan, you make a, a great point. And, uh, you know, nobody knows everything there is to know about this game, no matter who you are. And you can learn from everyone. Um, sometimes you learn not what, to, what not to do. Um, a lot of times you'll, you'll pick things up that you'll use. So you can always learn from, from anyone and everyone. One, one big thing that maybe I'm guilty of myself as well now that we think about it is I always prepare for my sessions um, you know, quite studiously and make sure my sessions are planned out and, and everything goes to plan and blah de blah de blah How much time do you actually think about how the session went? After the session, do you sit down and in the same way that you write out your session plan, do you write out how the session went? Do you evaluate it honestly and figure out what you can do better? Do you talk not just about the material that you used in the session, about the drills, about the games, about the subject of the session, but do you also think about what your body language was like? Do you think about your tone of voice? Do you think about how you cater to the different types of learning styles? Do you think about if the players enjoyed it? Is there any way we can measure if the players learned anything? Did we see a difference in the players from when they walked in the door to when they left the door? One thing I've done myself is I, I normally give one of our guys a ride to and from practice. And um, one thing I'll always do is, is ask him after training, you know, what did you think? Sometimes that's a difficult question for young players to answer because they're feeling under pressure from a coach. And they don't want to say to the coach, yeah, you know what, Dom, training was terrible. <laughs> they're not going to say that to you. Yeah, um, yeah, um, they're not going to say that to you, no matter how good your relationship is with the player. Um, when you're dealing with young players, they're not going to be that honest with you. So they're, they're probably always going to say, yeah, it was good, it was good. But then you, there's certain questions you can ask to, to delve a little deeper. You can say, you know, what did you think you improved from that? What improved? Why? As what a, could we do better? As an educator, which is what I consider myself, you know, highly 
a lot of time people call us trainers, coaches, you name it. I think I'm an educator. And one of the things that I practice a lot of is, you know, my, my, my huddles at the end of practices, I like to ask the players questions. It's almost like my last five minutes is going over what we learn. I believe if players learn concepts and theories, then ultimately they could take it for themselves and go home and practice with it. If you just show them how to kick the ball and they just mirror what you did, did they really learn or they just copied it? You know, which isn't wrong, but if they understand what they're trying to do, I think they could go coach themselves. So a lot of times I talk to my players at the end of practice, you know, when I have the time, because sometimes you don't, and I like to hear their version of what we went over. Because I'm such a big psycholo psychology coach, how I communicate to my players in practice is, is not random. I will use the right tone according to what I want to accomplish. I will repeat the same things probably over and over to kind of get it in their heads. They said there's three stages of memory. There's your instinctual memory, which is like the first three or four seconds. Then you have your short-term memory and your long-term memory. If your players can't go back through the things you said during the middle of the session, maybe it didn't hit their long-term memory or that short-term memory. Are you making sure that you're not just teaching them a million things and nothing sticking? Mm. It's probably better to teach them fewer things, repeat it more often, run your sessions back-to-back -back days or whatnot, and have it venture into their long-term memory. If you're not aware of that, you might find yourself spending a whole lot of time on something and not a lot of permanent learning going on. So this is something that I believe, as adults, we, we gotta be careful of. If you know the stages of learning, are you coaching appropriately? You know, are you repeating those things enough? As much as, as you mentioned before, Dom, some people learn with visual cues, you know, some people more audibly. They actually say weird enough, the audibly goes into the short-term memory a lot faster than the visual. I don't know why, but that's what science says. So do you know that? So I tend to show a lot because I could do, but ultimately I will repeat more often because somehow the words, I guess they got to focus in on it more or repeat it in their heads. I don't know, but it tends to have a faster approach into the short-term memory. Again, we could talk about these things over and over, but there's a psychological pattern to things, how kids learn. If you know them, you're better able to serve them. But you offered three good takeaways there. First of all, repeat yourself. Just because you said it once doesn't mean they understand it. And I think repeating yourself, maybe in a slightly different way, will help solidify it. I think the debrief, which I call after practice ends or a game end, I call it debriefing the players. Talking to them, what did we learn today? What did you learn today? Asking those questions. Then touch on all the subjects we learned about. Even if it was a repeat from a last session that some kid might have just thrown out there because he wanted to participate, yes, we did learn that. Here's a circumstance that is applicable. And finally, looking at yourself as an educator. I think that's paramount. I think if more coaches looked at themselves as educators, then they would probably spend more time educating themselves on how to be a better coach. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You're educating them about the game and about life. And there's a lot of life lessons to learn. And that's, that's really, really good points that you make there, guys. Um, and you know, for the coaches that are listening, I think it's important that we, we maybe give them some stuff that they can take away and use. Um, so, you know, Janil touched again on the auditory, the visual and the, and the kinesthetic learner. So how can you, hit all of those 
in, in one session. So if you're doing a passing drill, it may be that you give a demonstration yourself that is technically proficient. You talk it through why you're doing it. And then also maybe you have a, you use one of the players while you're doing the demonstration. So maybe I'm passing it back and forth with one of my players as I'm speaking. So all of a sudden you're hitting all three learning styles. Um, the kid you're using for the demo is getting the kinesthetic learning. The, the other kids are getting the auditory when you're speaking and also getting the visual from when you're doing the demo. Um, so that stuff is, is crucial and it's important that whenever you're doing something, one, you have to maximize your time. So can you combine hitting the three styles at once, which is what I said about using one of the players for your demo? And, and can you minimize your word choices? Uh, Janelle brought up some interesting topics about you know, your choice of vocabulary, the tone of your voice. Um, we were talking earlier about a study I, I saw recently um, about your vocabulary choices when you're coaching. Now, I'm, a, I'm very guilty of this myself. A lot of coaches will say to players, can you do this or can you do that? So I might say to a player, can you switch it with your right foot? Can you switch the field with your right foot? A good player in a lot of times is psychologically going to interpret that maybe as an insult or as being patronised. He's going to say, well, yeah, of course I can do that. I'm a good player. I can spray ball 60 yards to feet if I wanted to. Okay. So does that have the desired effect on a good player? It doesn't. If you look at it from the other side of the scale, if I say to a seven-year-old who's playing central midfield, can you get on the ball and can you switch it? He may not be sure he can switch it. And he may think, oh, actually, I can't do that, so I'm actually not going to try it. But if you just change that word choice of can you to try and, all of a sudden it puts a whole different spin on things. So if I say to the experienced player who's playing for Chelsea's reserves in central midfield and is pushing for a first team spot, if I say to him, okay, Dan, can you, sorry, not can you, try and switch the field more? Okay, yeah, I could, I could try more. Yeah, of course I can. All right. If I say to the seven-year-old who's playing central midfield for Paul Washington Soccer Club, Try and get on it and switch it a little bit more. All right, yeah, I'll try. I don't know if I can do it, but I'll try. And all of a sudden, you've helped the kid. Um, and you haven't made him question himself, which I think is, is what we're trying to do. And if you are educating people, which is what we are, Janelle made a great point, we're educators, we're not just coaches, we're educators. You have to teach the game. You have to teach the game. You have to teach the players how to make the most of their their ability and their potential. That's that's a brilliant illustration of um, what I call decoding. One of the major parts of, and it's a seven stage, seven stages of problem solving, which we don't have the time to go in today, but the second stage, which I think is the most important, is can they decode? How do you decode what you're trying to do? If players can't decode our messages, it's of no value to them. We, I might say, hey, you know, can you maximize the width? If you say that to a 16-year-old, he might understand what you're saying. An 8-year-old player might say, maximize width? What do you mean? Yeah. So we have to make sure that our communication is appropriate for the level. And as we all know, as trainers and coaches and educators, sometimes we find ourselves in different environments. We might be with a UA team in one minute, and next, you know, next hour you're with a, a U15 group. So are we... Being a chameleon, are we adjusting our, our coaching philosophies and, and approaches to fit the age group? And if you're not 
a master coach, as I say, and a master coach has nothing to do with, in my belief, the level of education that you might have or the level of degree you might have as a coach, but it's how good are you in the art of coaching, you know? And, and if you're pretty good at the art, these are things that you become very, very good at, you know? So I, I think it's just so many wonderful things that would have touched on how we're going to tie it into, let's say, delivering this message to a group of volunteer coaches and let them understand that it's important for them to be open-minded and do they believe that maybe some of their approaches aren't the greatest are they not as self-biased as we would like them to be to say okay i'm open to change can we educate them in such a way that they says yes we'd like to create a championship environment for our players because that's the environment that will enable us to develop more quality players and people over time and can they realize that some of their ways of doing things is ultimately something that their environment a long time ago created for them? They got developed that way and they're unwilling to change. Can we have adults change to a different way? And ultimately, that's what I think is going to get us to a championship mentality. That's all the time we have for this show. We'd like to thank the Parisi Speed School in Port Washington, New York for hosting us. For Jernia Lauren and Don Casiato, I'm Dan Brotman. We'll see you next time on Center Circle.